Uh, we are looking at Ephesians tonight, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. If you're, if you're watching and you can hear me and everything's going well enough uh, and you don't mind, go ahead and pop over to the comments uh, here on Facebook. In there you'll find a link if you want to download our, our study guide so you can follow along with everything and kind of keep up. Um, but tonight what we're going to do is I'm just going to read the text to you and then, and then we'll talk, I'll, t- I'll, I'll text, I'll talk, I'll pop some slides up and all that stuff and try and do this um, all by myself. So if you want to say a quick prayer with me, I'm just going to open us up. Father God, I just pray that tonight uh, your word hits our hearts, that it challenges us, uh, that we look at the instructions your, your apostle Paul laid out for us in your word for how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians, how we're to live. Lord, as we are new creations, as we are living a new life, you have given us direction in what that's supposed to look like. And so, Father, I pray that we glorify you with this, we praise you with this, and that you ultimately are who is glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Okay, with that all said... Uh, We're going to move on. I'm going to read to you the text. Um, We are looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. We're going to try and close this chapter out tonight. And it begins in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood... Oh, sorry, there we go. There's the slide. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Going on in in, uh, the next passage. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, each week in our study guide and in the class, I try to have a couple of quotes from famous preachers, famous pastors, uh, who kind of talk on this topic as well. And so we have that in your, in your study guide. If you want to download that, if you don't even want to look at it, that's understandable as well. But uh, I have the first quote is from Warren Worsby. And it goes like this. It says, but it is, oh, wait, pop it up there for everybody to see it. Uh, but it is not enough simply to die to the old life. There must also be resurrection and the manifestation of the new life. We put off the grave clothes for the old life and put on the grace clothes of the new life. And then I have a second quote from uh, Pastor John Blanchard, not the one who's made news in Virginia. This guy's a little older. Uh, It says, becoming a Christian is not making a new start in life. It is receiving a new life to start with. 
So those are just some observations and things as we as we get started tonight. Some other things. What we really have here in our text is uh, we're, we're looking at eight verses that give commands on Christian conduct. Uh, the next chapter is going to begin to tell us how to be imitators of God. So tonight, what we're doing is kind of laying a foundation um, for, for how to build on that and how to become imitators of God. We're going to break up this list that Paul has given us, and we're going to walk through each thing and break it down. Now, I realize there's about a 10-second delay from me saying something and everything happening on Facebook. So there might come a time where I ask for uh, an opinion or, or ask for your feedback and things on, on something. Or if you have a question that you want me to address, why don't you leave that in the comments and I will try to address it as it comes up or, or possibly even at the end of the class. I'm always happy to do that. Um, if you have an observation you want to share in the comments, I will try to get to it and, and recognize it as soon as you post it. But uh, obviously with the delay, that's going to cause a little bit of a hang up, but I'm going to, I'm going to try and do my best for that. Okay. So we look, we, we move on and it, well, the first thing we're going to really look at here is, uh, verse 25. It reads, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, the one thing I really want you to focus on and see is the idea of putting away falsehood and speaking the truth. <coughs> Excuse me. The CSB says it like this. It says, putting away lying. But it's, it's more than just that. It's more than just stop lying. It's more than just telling direct falsehoods. Lying can actually include exaggeration, uh, adding fabrications to something that is true, purposely omitting the truth. Uh, we like to say uh, if someone exaggerates hyperbolically or, or almost unrealistically, sometimes a, an expression I learned in Bible college was uh, they're speaking evangelistically. That's a really nice, kind way to say that person's a liar. Uh, they're, they're talking like an evangelist. They're just making up stories to make themselves sound better. Paul says don't do that. Christians are not supposed to do that. And it goes, it goes even deeper than that. This can include cheating, making foolish promises, promises you have no intention of fulfilling, betraying a confidence, uh, making false excuses, they're all forms of lying and they're all forms of deceit. Christians should have no part in that type of talk. Instead, Paul says we should speak truth. Paul's actually quoting here from the Old Testament, <coughs> from Zechariah chapter 8. He says, These are things that you should or that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. God's work is based on truth. God doesn't do anything in shadow. He doesn't do anything deceitfully. So truth should be about, that, that should be what the believer is about. Um, the uh, Sorry, uh, neither the truth nor individual believers can be instruments for the Lord to use if it's not truthful. So if, if we're trying to twist things and contort things, 
We can't expect God to really use us. God doesn't use things like that. The Christian's life, our very life, is based on the word of God. And God's word is truth. If we live deceitfully, we're living in contradiction to his word. We may excuse our behavior. We might try and and explain it away. But there's really no way around that. We live in a society that tells us to live our truth. But there is no his truth, her truth. There's only truth. Fact or opinion. Now some believe because it's an opinion, that means it's your truth. <clears throat> For instance, maybe you don't like oranges. And so your truth is oranges are disgusting. That's not a fact. That's an opinion. The only truth there is that you don't like oranges. That's a truth. Uh, my glasses case is orange. For, for example, I meant to have it here with me, but I left it at home tonight. But that's a fact. It's an orange case. I can prove that or I can prove it to be false. It holds my prescription glasses. That's a fact. Now, uh, I could say it's the best glasses case in the world. That is an opinion. A fact can be proven to be true or untrue. An opinion is something that is subjective to the speaker. Speaking your opinion as though it is a fact is dangerous, and it is a falsehood. You can, you can make a claim, I don't like this movie. I don't think I should watch this movie. That's your opinion. But to say that everybody shouldn't watch this movie without you know, giving actual evidence as to why, well, that becomes kind of a, a scarier type of thing. When preaching... When I'm, when I'm standing before the congregation, it's imperative that I present to you what, what I am speaking is either the truth of God's word or I'm expressing my opinion on the scripture there. Now, I can say something like, I think David was a redhead. You know, scripture calls him ruddy, which means he was red. So I can say, well, my opinion's based on that. But I don't know if David was a redhead or not exactly. That's not necessarily what it means. <clears throat> I can say, well, I think Jonah was a bad person. And I can say that based on Jonah's own writing. And I can show you in scripture where that's actually a scriptural fact. There's a slight difference there. One is based on God's truth. One is based on, maybe I, I, I'd like to identify with King David a little more because I have red hair too. There, there's a there's a slippery slope there. And as a preacher, as a handler of God's word, I have to be able to show you when it's the truth and when it's my own uh, preference or my own personal uh, taste uh, coming out on the scripture there. And we have to be careful even with doing that because we don't want to twist the scripture to fit my personal agenda or anything of that sort. We can argue and we can debate opinions. That's fun if we, if we can do it in good nature. But where scripture is foundationally true, expressly true, the matter is settled. There is no debate to be had. That's why, again, we have to abandon falsehoods and we have to speak truth so that our word is trustworthy and our testimony is unshakable. And finally, of course, the idea of being members of one of those uh, members of one another that, that kind of circles us back to something we've covered in the class previously about being united in the body of Christ. If you're, if you're manipulative, if you're speaking falsehood or omitting truth, well, then it's harder to want to be uh, unified with you 
because I don't know if I can trust you or not. But if we are speaking the truth and we're speaking the truth in love and unifying the body of believers, we trust one another. We become stronger together. Okay, so we're going to go on. The next verse is verse 26, and I'm going to pull that up here for you to see it. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. All right. Now, this is going to tie into the next verse too, but we're going to break this down as well. Paul is actually, again, he's quoting from the Old Testament here. Um, he's quoting from Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Anger can be a good thing. A lot of people think anger is a horrible thing, but it's what drives Jesus to flip tables over in the temple. It, that's a righteous anger. Anger's goodness or badness is really determined by the motives behind it and the purpose that it serves. For example, if someone wants to break into my home and harm my wife and children, I can be angry about that. And that anger is going to drive me to defend them with everything I have at my disposal. But if I'm angry because someone across the street moves in and they're a different skin color or something like that, well, that makes me a racist. That's not good anger. That's a prejudice coming out. That's not anger like uh, I'm wanting to defend myself. That's, that's anger that becomes quickly can quickly become hate. We can be angry at injustice. We can be angry at evil. We can be even angry at our own sins and our own shortcomings. That's the righteous anger that Paul would allow for. What he's not sanctioning here is unjust anger. It's the Greek word orgazeste, and it can mean to be even irritated. Irritation can be that, that dark cloud that quickly becomes a, a raging storm of anger if we're not careful. Paul is making it very clear in his writing here that it's it's okay to feel anger. It's a secondary emotion, anger is, by the way. <coughs> Excuse me. Psychology tells us that anger is caused by hurt, by fear, or by frustration. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be frustrated. But we don't sin from those things. Even though the Bible consistently tells us, do not be afraid. Fear is given to us by God. Fear can keep you alive. You come across a bear in the woods, fear might be the matter of you walking up trying to pet that thing and smartly backing away as quietly and as quickly as you can. Or a mountain lion, for this, the example I wrote in my notes. I forgot that I even did that. You know, instead of saying, here, kitty, kitty, to a mountain lion, fear might say, oh, I better, I better abandon this place swiftly post haste in fear in frustration and hurt we don't want to let our anger control us or take control of the situation uh, we don't want to let it lead us into sin paul counsels the readers don't do not let the sun go down on your anger there's wisdom there don't let yourself stay angry for too long I have a certain relative, no matter what, they get, they seem to just get angry. They fly off the handle. They get mad for days, weeks, sometimes even months. In fact, if you were to bring up certain names, certain situations that happened years ago, 
their countenance will go from one of just perfectly fine to so dark and almost murderous rage, angry at, at, at the situation or the person you just brought up. It's like it's a whole fresh thing. That person, whether they realize it or not, they're either a rageaholic addicted to being anger, uh, being angry, they enjoy being angry, or possibly their anger is a shield for a deeper hurt that they're refusing to deal with. And every slight, whether it's real or imagined, is just salt in that same wound over and over and over again. So they stay angry. That's not healthy mentally. That's not healthy physically. It's not healthy emotionally. And Paul tells us it's not healthy spiritually either. <clears throat> now, Paul is going to go on in verse 27, and he's going to finish this thought. He's going to say, and give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this is often tied to anger, as it should be. It's, it's part of that sentence. And there's been a lot of teaching over the years that anger can somehow lead straight to, even in Christians, that somehow it can lead straight to a demonic possession or oppression and things of that sort. And there's a lot to clean up in that mess. Um, but let's just address the text as it is, okay? He says, give no opportunity to the devil. That's part of the original sentence. We have to understand that. <clears throat> but anger, it leads to disruption. And it leads to division within the body of Christ. So when we look at this in the context, what we are seeing is the devil loves disruption. The, the devil loves to see division in the body. He loves to see the breaking up of unity. And as we've learned earlier in chapter 2, verse 2, the believer is to be free of Satan's rule. We may have once walked in it, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, but no longer should the believer follow down that path. We should not give him, the enemy, any opportunity to use us, to use our anger, use our hurt, our frustration, our fear, our bitterness, and the list goes on, to use us in a way that will cause division in the body or influence the minds of others in a way that will cause them to cause division in the body. Now, Paul's not saying the devil produces anger. He's not saying that. Anger, again, it's, it's something that happens within us. But if it remains unchecked, well, Peter tells us, he tells the whole church, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, the devil is an opportunistic jerk waiting for you to lose your cool so he can sweep in and cause even more damage, more destruction, and in the process, devour you if possible. God tells Cain that sin is crouching at his door, waiting to pounce in Genesis 4-7. Similar to the prowling lion is, is one way to understand that. So we have to be watchful in our anger. Now, we go on in verse 28. I'm going to pull that up here. 
Verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Uh, so, do, don't steal. Instead, work. That's kind of what, what Paul's getting at here. Don't steal. Work. Labor. The word steal actually comes from the Greek word klepto. And if you've heard me preach in the last year or so, I, I've mentioned that a couple of times. Klepto is where we get the idea of kleptomania. That's taking things that, that don't belong to you for personal gain. That's what stealing is. Okay? Stealing is obviously it's forbidden in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not steal. And it's forbidden in the New Testament. Even if we are in need, we are to try as Christians, our conduct should be that we try to labor and earn what we get. Now, if we are offered help or offered aid, like maybe you need to take food stamps or something like that, that's okay. But the ultimate goal of the Christian is to work for what they gain if they are able to. Not to steal from our employers or take from those who may not suspect it. Not to take advantage of programs and assistance that's available. Instead, we are to labor. The word there for that is kapayo, which literally, literally would mean to toil. Paul says Christians should work with their own hands. That's something kind of exclusive to Paul. That's something he likes to, to say quite a few times in the New Testament, probably because Paul himself, as a tent maker, a leather worker, he was probably someone who really enjoyed working with his own hands, and he encouraged other Christians to do that as well. We see him use the, that terminology in 1 Corinthians 4.12, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, 2 Thessalonians 3.8. The idea is whatever we, we gain from our labor that we do with our own hands, that we, we work, we sweat, we try to, to get, we're able to provide not only for ourselves, but for others as well. Helping others is expected of Christians. We see it in Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 35. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. The idea here in Ephesians is that not only will the believer be able to work and therefore no longer need to steal, but with Christ now a part of their life, generosity flows from their life into the lives of others, and they're able to bless others and help them get on their feet quicker, faster. And you see that when we are united, this theme continues as we're united, we raise one another up. Uh, someone once said, a rising tide lifts all ships. That's true in the body of Christ too. If one of us does well, we should try to raise up others, to build up others. And we're going to see that play out in our text as well. Verse 29. I'm going to check real quick. Any comments? I don't see any comments or questions. <coughs> Excuse me. So, okay, verse 29. It reads, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. All right. So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's that's the real thing. Don't speak 
corruptly. All right. The word for corrupting here is is the Greek word sapros, which really it means that um, it, it's not just something that is unwholesome, um, as some translations would say it, but something that is rotten, like spoiled free, uh, spoiled fruit or or putrid meat. It's worthless. It's decaying. It's not good in any way. So foul language of any sort should not pass from a Christian's lips. Now it can be understood, foul language, we often take that and we understand it as curse words. Um, you know, saying swears and things like that. But other things that may also be culturally crass or lewd, uh, these are things that are not building up others, but tearing them down. And let's be honest, curse words, they're usually dictated solely by a culture. A swear word in English, for example, if you were to fly to the middle of China and utter a word, that a four-letter word that's profane in English, well, it's going to lose complete meaning to those who have no idea what you just said. So it becomes meaningless. But really, the idea, the, the truth behind this is that it's the heart and the mindset behind the words that are being spoken. That's what truly matters. And if we're not using up our words for building others up and educating and challenging and correcting, well, why are we saying anything as Christians? Because that's kind of the whole point. Paul says our words should fit the occasion, that it may, be, uh, that it may give grace to those who hear our words. Since believers are, are saved by grace and kept by grace, the believer should also live and speak with grace. Christ himself sets this standard. Luke 4.22, he says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Remember that God can work through our words to help others and bring his grace to them. Now, I said that, and someone's going to hear that, and they're going to try and take that out of context and, and say, Ah, pastor, okay. Now, this is one of those opportunities where someone's going to bring up Proverbs 8.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Finish the verse. And those who love it will eat its fruits. We don't like to do that, but that that's the whole thing. Okay, you've all heard me say it. Context matters. They're gonna they might hear me say this thing about God using our words and then try and, and turn it into something else. That's not okay. This pa- that passage in, in in Proverbs Proverbs eighteen it has nothing to do with actually causing life and death, as in that we have these creative powers. Uh, that we are little gods speaking things into exe- existence, ex nihilo. Uh, the second half of the, pa- the passage proves that, but it does, it, it does in, in that matter, sort of, sync with what Paul is saying, and that there are repercussions to what we say and how we say it. All right, so in the, in the essence of if you take the full context of Proverbs 18, that those who love it will eat its fruits, that ties into what Paul is saying. Because if your words are are uh, corruptible, if they're decaying fruit, well, then you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that decaying fruit. It's not that when we speak, we are killing people or speaking things 
it, it, mag, like we're we're making magic happen, like we're some kind of elves in a fantasy book or something. We are we are to be building up others and encouraging or bringing life and trying to convince them to live in the grace of Christ. That's as far as that goes. So don't don't try to say, well, Pastor was uh, encouraging us to to speak magically over someone's life. No, 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 no. That was never the intention here. We are to speak in order to build up each other and encourage one another. That that is what Paul means about uh, speak or what what the proverb was saying about speaking life and what Paul's talking about as far as building each other up. Now, on the topic of controversial verses and whatnot, let's go ahead and we'll dive into verse thirty. Again, no comments, no questions. I'm assuming that it looks like we've got eight people watching. It sounds like everybody's kind of uh, on the same page page with us here. So verse 30, it reads, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's that's the takeaway from this path, this passage. This verse gets used and abused all the time in Pentecostal circles. Whether people are not corrected when they prophesy falsely, maybe they say something unbiblical, they, tr- they often get told um, if someone goes to correct such a person, the corrector will get told, well, you have a religious spirit or you have a pharisaical spirit about you. There's no such thing as those things, but whatever. When they try to do that sort of thing, uh, they're trying to keep order in the service. and They're trying to keep people on the right path. That is not necessarily being a Pharisee. That's probably trying to be a good shepherd and, and keep everybody in order and in step with the word of God. That's what we are to do. But sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, because they did that, they're quenching the spirit. Uh, no, that's not what Paul really means here. Okay, the word grieve here is from the Greek word lipi, which literally means to cause sorrow or stress. Well, the Holy Spirit is God, so he's not going to get stressed. So really, this is causing sorrow, or as some would translate, as, as our, our text translates it, as grief, causing grief or sadness for the Holy Spirit. Well, how could we possibly do that. I don't think I'm powerful enough to make God cry, right? But the Holy Spirit can be saddened by how we live when we give in to our sinful natures, not living for Christ because we are we are pulling away from his direction for our lives. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, when we give in to lying, when we give in to anger, when we use foul language, if we steal, these are things that bring the Spirit Sorrow, things we've already kind of covered. Paul is reminding the reader that the Holy Spirit is someone whose presence in their life is both a privilege and a responsibility. He's not some impersonal force, but he is a person of the Trinity who dwells inside us, who leads us, who walks beside us. The responsibility is to not disappoint or grieve or cause sorrow in the way that we live, that we not negate that that seal upon us for that day of redemption. 
Paul's also quoting Isaiah here, Isaiah 63.10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. When we rebel against God in our daily lives, that is grieving the Holy Spirit. It goes on in Isaiah, it says, Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Our rebellion against God is grieving his spirit. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And it goes on in that same chapter, verse 40, But all things should be done decently and in order. So the person who's grieving the Holy Spirit is the one who's bringing chaos and who's bringing uh, unbiblical methods and unbiblical things into that atmosphere. That's really what's grieving the Holy Spirit, not the one who's trying to bring order and, and consistency. So just keep that in mind. The next time you hear someone say, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, what they're really trying to say, what they should be trying to say, is I don't want to be disobedient to the Lord. I don't want to do something wrong here. I don't want to, I don't want to get off track. Okay? All right. Now, the next verse is verse 31. I'm going to pull that up. Here we go. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All right. Now, there's quite a lot in there. So I am going to real quick go on and just post this list as we go through these things. These things paint a picture of the former life of the believer, the old nature that's mentioned in verse 22 of chapter 4, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. These are the things that would come naturally to a unbelieving Christian or an unbeliever, not someone who's not a Christian. And things like bitterness, okay, that's the first one. Bitterness is simply, it's a spirit that refuses reconciliation. Someone once said that the best way to describe bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's what being bitter is. You can't let go of hurt. You can't let go of anger. And you're letting that that person and the way you feel about them control you. And then we see wrath. Wrath or in some translations rage. These are those outbursts of anger. A quick temper that acts out of selfish desires. It could be continually or simply uncontrolled behavior. That's wrath. If your anger is controlling your actions, you're living in a sinful, at least in that moment, you're living in sin. And we look, there's wrath and then there's anger. <coughs> well, what's the difference there? We've kind of talked about anger already, but here it's more of a continuous attitude of hatred that stays bottled up inside us. Wrath or rage are outbursts of this anger. But this would be anger that stews within us. It destroys harmony and unity among believers. It just kind of bubbles under your skin as you're trying to live your life, but you just can't, it just, it just is there and it, 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 pester, it festers as it pesters you. All right? That's the kind of anger that he's talking about here. And then the word clamor. That's not a word you use very often, I bet. Clamor or harsh words are really self-assertions of angry people, which are made by angry people that are determined 
to make their anger known. So there are things you say in, in harshness, in bitterness, in anger, in wrath. The, the clamor or the, the, the mean things and hurtful things you say so that you can feel better in your wrath, in your anger. And, and of course, it's just clamor. Some of the times, you know, and I think of clamor as, as the sound of falling armor and falling swords, falling shields. You know, there's a great clamor. It's a bunch of clattering. And, and that's really what clamor words are. They're just a bunch of weapons that are falling useless. They're not really, they might hurt somebody else, but they're not really doing what they're intended for. They're just, they're just causing pain and a mess. They're not really uh, being used at the right enemy. They're being focused at, at just any direction. And that's a good way to look at clamor. Now, slander is the second to last word on this list. This is true gossip. When you hear people talking about gossip, that, that is slander. It's when we seek to snipe a person, like you, you focus your, your anger, your words, your wrath, your clamor, and another person's good reputation by lying about them, by spreading rumors about them, by going out of our way to complain and grumble. Malice manifests itself often through slander, but this is really true defamation of character that destroys human relationships. This is one of those things the enemy is waiting to pounce on and waiting to use to divide the body. When we have slander, I've said this many times from the pulpit, gossip is like venom in the body of Christ and it will poison us if we're not careful. That's what slander is good for. And finally, we look at malice. Malice is is such a, an evil, wicked word. It's almost like uh, when I when I hear it, I always seem to think of you know a Disney villain or something. Ma- this is this is doing evil despite any good that has been received. This word is a is actually a general term referring to an evil act that destroys relationships, and it can be anything from being troublesome to choosing to be absolutely vile, absolutely wicked. Malice is a deliberate attempt to harm another person one in one form or another. Therefore, Paul says, all malice has to be destroyed. And then he goes on the last verse, verse 32. This is how it's done. He says, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Now, kindness is not just letting someone continually hurt themselves. Kindness is not enabling bad behavior. Kindness is loving someone enough to give them truth. Kindness is, the, is, is loving someone to take them aside and say, brother or sister, What you were doing was malice. What you're doing was purposely focusing on one person and hurting them or or the way you treated so-and-so was not okay. Now, many times we like to fall under this 11th unspoken commandment, thou shalt be nice. You know, North Dakota nice is is a phrase I've heard way too many times since moving to North Dakota. And yes, I understand I'm, I'm like the human opposite of that sometimes. I'm a bull in a china shop and I'm blunt and I, I, I'm right to the point. And, and sometimes 
we we have to be that way because if you're too if you're nice you're not being kind and there's a difference there nice seeks to avoid conflict where kindness says we have to have this conflict if there's to be growth this is the way we heal from all the harm that we have done to one another we have to be kind and forgive even even harms that we've inflicted upon our own selves we have to show kindness to ourselves not niceness and excusing things but kindness pointing them out and lovingly trying to remove the barbs we have inflicted on each other the previous way of life should be just that previous it shouldn't be an active way we choose to live our lives as believers Believers should be kind to one another as God has been kind toward us. And again, kindness means being loving, being charitable towards one another, acting benevolently. Wow, that was a hard word for me to say tonight. Benevolently towards others as God has acted this way towards us. 1 John 4 tells us, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Tenderheartedness is also being compassionate. Compassion is genuine sensitivity and sympathy towards others' needs. And believers need to forgive one another, truly forgive one another, as Christ has forgiven us. One of the things I've noticed in churches more and more, and and sadly more and more, is that especially in in churches with older congregations, it seems like we all know each other, and we all know each other's triggers, we know how to set one another off, and we know how each person sets us off, and we just carry that bitterness with us. We carry hurts with us. And I'm 41. I have hurts that I've noticed in myself I do this very thing. I can't say such and such to brother so-and-so. He's going to fly off the handle at me. I can't say this to sister what's-her-face or she's just going to start crying. So I, I just, what do I do? I shell up like a turtle. I don't forgive. I don't act with tenderheartedness. I don't act with compassion. Yet that is what Paul is telling us we must do. Believers need to truly forgive And truly love one another if we are to grow together. And that's what we truly want. We are absolutely forgiven of our sins when we come to Christ. And because we have that forgiveness that we've experienced, we have to forgive others. Because the more we hang on to it, the more we weigh ourselves down. Now, I don't mean when I say that, I'm not saying we do this because we have to per se. But because the love and forgiveness of Christ compels us to, if you've truly been forgiven by Christ, you're going to truly forgive from Christ. We pass the, the forgiveness that we've received on to others. And if we, if we harbor it, if we don't realize it and, and, and let go of that, we're in danger. We really are. This is what Jesus said. If you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So many problems within the church are solved when we truly do forgive one another. 
Now that does not mean when I'm when I'm reading that from Matthew six, it's not saying that if you come to Christ, you're not forgiven. But you are not living in the fullness of the forgiveness that you've been offered until you, from that forgiveness, forgive other people. I want to make that clear before we end tonight. So with all this said, I hope you've enjoyed tuning in. I'm not seeing any comments or questions or anything of that nature. But if you do have questions, make sure you bring them to class next week. Looks like we're in for some beautiful weather in the coming days. uh, Melting all the snow we just got that shut the whole state down. So... Figures, April in North Dakota, right? In the meantime, I pray this has really blessed you and encouraged you. And um, look at, yep, still no questions or anything. All right, that's it for tonight. God bless you guys. Hope you've enjoyed the Bible study.